Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 132. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm really excited to introduce a very special guest, Jeff Hacker. Jeff, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. Shake, rattle, and go. That's what <laughs> Bill Burke told me so many years ago when he took the first belly tank on the uh, South Flat South there in El Mirage. So, uh, very shake, rattle, cool. and go. Very cool. I love that. Jeff Hacker has been called Captain Curiosity, and the author of Cars Yeah! Guest, Tom Cotter, called him the Snipe Hunter in his book, Corvette in the Barn. Jeff's a college professor, an automotive historian, a researcher, and quite an adventurer. He's the king of automotive barn finds, and he'll go anywhere to uncover and bring back the life of a vehicle that some of us never even knew existed, and many of us thought were long gone. Along with his friend of 30 years, Rick DeLouis, they co-produced the website Forgotten Fiberglass, where you can find them and the treasures that they uncover. And now they're working on a book to share with the world under the same title. So, Jeff, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you please take some time and share a little bit more about your history, your career, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Sure. Thank you for the uh, kind introduction. You're welcome. Let's see. This is 2014, so I'm 52 this year. I've been interested in cars since... uh probably four or five. I used to look at the taillights of cars when I was very young, not, not as four and five, and try to remember the different taillights and what those cars were. And It was a lot more fun in the 60s and 70s than it is currently. Yeah. But uh, I've absolutely loved cars and, and uh, from a very young age, very interested. And my first car that I got was age 14. It was a 1955 Cadillac four-door Fleetwood, serial number 5560444492, but who remembers those things? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I used to carry a, a photo of it. I think like any, you know, I'm not sure if all car guys would do that, but uh, I, I just mean that I really enjoy cars, and in the 70s is when I got that. Kind of initiated my own passion for different cars. In Chicago, a, a 50s Cadillac in 1970s era was very unusual, and I worked with a, a mentor at the time, an older gentleman named Paul Terrorist, who's now a friend of almost 40 years, mm-hmm. and Paul's a big Packard guy out in, out in Chicago. Cool. So 
my real interest started my grandfather. My, it was not my father that was uh, interested in cars. It was my mother. And my grandfather on my father's side sold Chevrolets for nearly 40 years. So they were kind of car blood, a little bit unusual, not through my father's side, but my mom and my father's father. Yeah. And from most of my life, I've always been interested in them. And uh, we moved from Chicago, 1979, and came down here. Been down in Tampa, Florida since 79. You mentioned in, that I was a college professor, which I have been for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I worked in a corporate mm-hmm. environment for a company called Eckerd Drug. But my car interest, even though it's been lifelong, has really only started again with a purchase of a car in 2006. And all of the things that Rick DeLuy and I, and we've been friends for 35 years or so, uh, had done around forgotten fiberglass and research and uh, sharing what we find and sharing what other people find. Because forgotten fiberglass is not a website or a story about Jeff and Rick. It's really the story of how the American sports car movement emerged in post-war America and all the people that were building those cars and all the people who have been finding and restoring those cars lately. So we're just the lucky guys who get to do the work to help promote all the guys from the 50s and all the guys and gals and families who are sharing their cars these days. And Rick and I do that through writing our own website, um, helping other authors um, by providing everything we have for free in terms of what they would like to know about different unusual limited production cars from the from that era. We are a resource for those people. We also work with uh, shows such as Pebble Beach, Concours, and Amelia Island, and a host of other ones, Milwaukee Masterpiece up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Carlisle uh, up in their import show, which is in May of each year. So we work with regional and, and international shows, and we've done some work with uh, TV shows, too. And we've got... Um, an episode coming out with Ray Abraham's show on Velocity TV channel called um, Americana. So but we're part of that whole episode that will be coming out in January 2015, I believe. So oh, very cool. we're resource, we're promoters, we're researchers, we're uh, writers. We, we, uh, when we we're trying to get information out to magazines, uh, and it's kind of tough this time because magazines really have a tough time. You know, they're, they're caught between online, which is free, and paper-based subscriptions. And so, you know, magazines are dwindling, and content is dwindling, not expanding. And so that's really when we started Forgotten Fiberglass to try to get more information out. And really, that expanded from a, a website that was started by a good friend, John Gruel. And he started Ladari.com. And credit needs to be given to John, who's still a very good friend, about starting a website, Ladari, which was about a specific car you could build in the 50s and 60s. And then he started expanding that to include more, and then John and I became friends, and we kind of took the website in an expanded direction, and then John has since moved on, although still they're a very good friend, and Rick and I have continued on and expanding the website. I always like to start things with a success quote, and this is a saying that has been instrumental in forming your life or has some meaning to what you're doing today, and it's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So Jeff, take the wheel. We have a, a phrase that characterizes everything that we do on Forgotten Fiberglass. And Forgotten Fiberglass is just one of a collection of websites that we've started about hand-built cars in America. Some are fiberglass, some are steel, some are aluminum, and so forth. But all of these things, the process, the thought, thoughts behind building and designing your own car, the idea that you, I have a hard time cleaning my house, loading the dishwasher. How, I mean, I think about designing a body and then building it out of whatever material and then building a car <laughs> and then driving it. My God, the whole process um, of doing that is an amazing story. And what Rick DeLouis and I call this is the greatest American car story never told. Mm. And why that's inspirational to me is it's, it represents individuals, small companies, 
slaving away for an amazing amount of time, the average time it took to build one of these cars, if you had a body, was about 2,000 hours in the 50s. Not a kit from the 60s or 70s, but when you actually got a body and then had to build the frame and, and put together the entire car. A lot longer than you think, and that time is not... 2,000 hours is not something I came up with. That's actually from interviewing people from back in that day mm -hmm. and reading stories from back then. It's all printed. And if some of the people, like the chairman of uh, chairman emeritus of Pebble Beach Concord Delgans, uh, Jules or Jay Hunan, uh, he built himself a fiberglass car based on a Singer chassis in the 50s. And I asked him, how long did it take you to, to build your own car? And I said, the average time was 2,000 hours. And he laughed. He said, well, if we had a body, maybe, but I made a body too. He and his brother signed. Mm -hmm. And it took them, they estimated, about 3,000 hours. Now, wow. I'm not a mathematician, but 2,000 hours, for those of you in human resources, is uh, 50 weeks of 40-hour weeks, full-time, and then you get two weeks off for vacation. And that's what 2,000 hours is in an American 40-hour week kind of production line. So right. that's a whole lot of time. And they, were, they finished their cars more quickly than I can clean my house, which is not big house. <laughs> That's so we call it again the greatest American car story never told because this is an un untold and unsung hero to me, kind of the backbone of America, a real story about Americana uh, in that people who have the entrepreneurial drive and the success and talent to, to make it happen can actually build things that were just amazing, and those cars have been forgotten year after year, decade after decade, and that's what Rick DeLouis and I are doing. When we reach some of these guys in their 80s and 90s now, or their families, um, you know, children of them. I can't remember any time where we were standing in the line of people they've talked to. We're often the first people to talk to them in 40 or 50 years. Wow. It's a gentleman out in San Diego, Warren Edding. And Warren and his wife were married in 1950. He's 87 years old. And they're doing, they're doing great. Um, but I just found them. His car was finished, a Woodhill Wildfire in the late 1950s, 58. Found the magazine where it appeared in. And I said, well, you know, Warren Edding is a pretty easy, a pretty unique name. I bet I could find them. And as Rick DeLuy and I always think in terms of research, um, people are like fish on a reef. They don't stray very far from where they go. And sure enough, he was still in San Diego, hadn't always been there, moved mm -hmm. away, and then came back. He doesn't have his car, but I was the first person, we were the first people to interview him and talk about how that car was built. And we're getting ready here in late 2014 to tell his unique story and get more pictures of the car and talk about the awards that he won and the process that he went. And guess what? After 50-some years... He still has every trophy and every photo we ever taken. He hasn't seen the car in 50 years. And then guess that what Rick and I then do, which is the most important to me, to me and I'll bring this up later in the interview, but uh, Rick and I then unite people in their cars, and we do oh, this time and time again. Fantastic. And I went out and found his car. It's in Colorado, and sent him pictures of it, and his tears in his eyes. I mean, this was... It was important enough that since the 1950s, here in 2014, he and his family, he and his wife still had the trophies and the photos, and that Rick and I do time and time again, reunite. They may not be able to chance to buy the car or own the car, but the fact that something that Warren and others worked so hard in building and such a desire to uh, complete and in such a big part of their lives and their kids' lives and so forth. Uh, in fact, he named his car after his daughter, and his daughter just found out last week that her car and her name still exists. Very cool. So that is not unique. <laughs> that is something we do time and time and time and time and time again, and yeah. that is the best part of what we do, and we oh. do that as love for the hobby and love for the story. So just yeah. to, I'll say it one more time, third time, the greatest American car story never told. I love it. That's fantastic. Very, very cool. Would you share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars? You talked about it at four years old, memorizing the taillights on vehicles when you're riding around the back seat of your 
folks' car, but is there a pivotal moment you can think of when you really knew you were a car guy? You know, my grandfather sold cars, but we didn't work on cars or wrench cars. I can do that. I learned to do that. I was 14 years old. I surprised my mom. She came back with with the Cadillac. I was 15, actually, by then, and we pulled the engine out of the Cadillac, and I stuck the car in their garage. I'm a sophomore in high school, no mechanical experience, and uh, did it myself with maybe a friend. And we, she, and she told me recently she thought the car was going to be junk after that. But no, that I dropped the thing off and got it rebuilt with my friend Paul Terrorist, you know, guiding the way yeah. and saved up money and working at a grocery store, blah blah blah. Got it back, and then by the spring I was driving the car with a new engine. That was pretty cool. I mean, that was I was capable of doing that without a lot of support, but a lot of support in terms of giving me the room to do that came from my mom. Right. But that still is a rather you know, normal kind of experience for a young teenage guy building his own car. What happened when we moved down to Tampa, Florida, I missed my mentor, Paul Terrorist. I was 17. Paul was has always been into Packards and other really cool cars, and I moved down here. Who wouldn't move to Florida at age 17 near the beach oh, yeah. from Chicago? <laughs> I'm surprised anyone's left in Chicago. I love Chicago. But, you know, I was going to go down and move down here. But when I did, I lost all my car interest or car support. And uh, I came down here, and I worked at a hotel on the beach in my senior year of high school. Case and I would go downtown, Clearwater, not a big town. And there was this really interesting, futuristic kind of car, a strange little thing. And so it didn't look like it had been there for decades mm-hmm. you know, to me. It, it had been there. It sunk into the ground. It, was, it absolutely looked like it had been there for decades. But I didn't know how old it was. It looked futuristic. It didn't look... I mean, Star Wars, it was, this is 79, 80 now. So Star Wars was only out for a few years ago. It could have fit into the Star Wars films. Very strange. Hmm. I drove past it for a few months, and I stopped in and asked him if it was for sale, what was it, and they told me it's the shark. Now, I grew up with Paul Terrorist working on, you know, I had my 55 Caddy, and I had, he had Packard. So this was a small fiberglass car. I thought it was wonderful. And so a few months later, I was looking through the auto trader. It was paper-based then. And here's the shark. What a three-built. Didn't turn out to be one of three. They made a few more, but... Uh, I drove down there, and they said, open on the offers. I still have the ad. And I said, do you remember me? I'd like to buy the car. And they said, well, we already have an offer of 500 And I said, well, I'll give you everything I have, which is $350. <laughs> I'm still friends with the family that I bought it from. Still have the bill of sale and everything. And so they said, we remember you, and we would like you to have the car. And so the next day, I mean, I was down there the next day with a trailer I had to rent, and picked up this car, and we didn't know anything about it other than the shark. They said they built three, and it was built in Clearwater. And we hauled it out of the ground. I had to use a winch, a hand winch, like a boat winch to get it up. It was kind of funny, and then bring it back. And of course, it didn't roll, and everything's locked up, and it was horrible. But it was kind of an adventure. And then the next day, young 32-year-old or so, Rick DeLouis called and said, uh, the owners or the sellers gave me your name. I know something about that car that might help. Oh. And that's how Rick and I started our friendship that's my first car that I still have for 35 years. I found two other sharks that I currently own. Mm-hmm. They made it six roadsters and six coupes. And it, from that, I did all the research with Rick's help, tracking down the original designers, owners, builders, other cars, all of whom I'm still in touch with their families or the direct people, you know, the elderly at this point, uh, who built those cars to this day. And that process of finding a car, recovering a car, the friends I made during it, the process of research, going down to the library in St. Petersburg Library, and looking up what had been a famous car in the late 50s and early 60s. There's a whole section devoted to what's called the Covington Shark and all the history and notoriety received in road and track and hot rod and everything back in the early 60s. Well, I had no idea. And that whole process is what 
really was very exciting. It'd be exciting for any any car person out there, car guy or car gal to do. Oh, sure, yeah. And then in, and and that kind of and then I found you know through that process found the second shark and bought that and restored the first one and kept the second one and and basically had them for the last thirty some years and only and in two thousand six I found the coupe version which was the very famous version out in California and that again started research and history and that's where the beginning of forgotten fiberglass started it was a quest for this old college professor to learn more about the history of fiberglass cars in America, and there's very little history at all written down in a highly disciplined way in terms of who, what, where, when, and why in first-person stories. Most of what was told was told 50 years ago. Well, Rick and I changed the game, and we went out and found the people, drove out to see the people, and even next week, we're going out to a, a north of us, a couple-day drive to visit another person, 82 years old, who built his own car, do interviews, get pictures, and so forth. Very cool. Wonderful. Just fantastic. Really, really fascinating. What I want to do now, Jeff, is I want to crawl under the hood and, and take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and maybe get our hands a little dirty here, but I'd love for you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you've faced in this one of these many adventures. But more importantly, share with the listeners how you overcame that and what you learned from it. Well, Rick and I have had great success. Great success because of our passion and hard work and discipline. In other cases, it has nothing to do with any of those things. We're the first people to go down this road. Mm-hmm. And that's where the challenge became. In like 2006, I hooked up with um, Ladari.com and John Gruel. I come back, my background is a PhD in industrial organizational psychology. So I have fun with the idea of Indiana Jones leather coat and hat and so forth, and I've got a couple of photos we jokingly didn't like that. But we actually do do the research. We do go on adventures, sometimes out of this country. We are pulling cars out of barns. One barn, we had to take the barn apart because the car had been encapsulated with uh, updates and work over the years. He couldn't get it out without taking a whole wall down to get the car out of the barn. Oh my uh, we've gosh. dug them out of ice before. We've gone into deserts. Um, we filmed some of this stuff, and you know, we take photos of a lot of them. But we're the, we're the first ones kind of down. We're, we're not the first ones going down asking people about the Ferrari that's advertised or the Maserati. These are beautiful cars, the Chevrolet Corvette, the Camaro, the Mustangs. Mm-hmm. We are the first people looking for Ladaris. We are the first people looking for glass cars uh, to, in, in terms of being disciplined and coming up with finding cars and, and then not just finding the cars, but finding the stories. Actually, Rick and I weren't trying to find cars. We're really a research. Both of us are, um, Rick is a PhD in economics from the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. A recent book called Fifty Shades of Rust by Tom Cotter. Oh, yes. Tom's been on the show. Tom's a good friend, and Tom, we've been in a couple of his books. Um, and Tom has a section in there called PhD Barn Finders, which I thought was kind of funny. And, you know, Rick and I apply a high level of discipline to this, but we're looking for cars. You know, we'd say we specialize in finding cars no one's looking for, or you could say stories. Mm-hmm. and then telling these amazing stories. So if you go down a path no one has ever gone down before, then all the low-hanging fruit is there. All the people are there you can find, all the families, all the cars. And unless you're, and our greatest challenge was, okay, you know, if, would you rather have um, um, $10,000 right now, Mark, or do you want a penny today and double what you get every day for 30 days? Which do you want? I'll take the penny. <laughs> Right, and you double the penny, yep. and then on day two it becomes two cents, and uh-huh. day three it becomes four cents, and day 30 it becomes $1.5 million uh, or yep, something like that. Yep, I taught that lesson to my kids years ago. <laughs> you find the first car, and then you're looking for glass cars, and those, and then you find the second people, and the third, and you start getting people energized because people who own the cars find out about you, and you're sharing history, and all of a sudden six people and eight people, and we're 
20 people and then 100 people. And then how do you communicate through magazines? Forgotten Fiberglass, the website, is an outgrowth of us being very frustrated about not being able to get articles quickly into magazines. Not mm -hmm. into. We've been had tremendous success in Hemmings and Classic and Sport Cars and Rotter's Journal. And Auto Week is now doing a feature on a car we have called the Leo Lines Custom Merc. Um, but we need more stories faster. There's, there was, how many cars do you think, how many fiberglass sports cars were on the market and you could buy in America prior to the fall of 1953 when you could actually get a Corvette? They came out in the early part of 53, but how many fiberglass sports cars, Mark, do you think I, were out there? I have no idea. In the, well, I want you to guess. This is cars, yeah. Okay. <laughs> how, how about uh, 50? That's about right, actually. It's pretty good, but close to 50. Fiberglass, <laughs> and if you had an aluminum and so forth. Now, that's before the Corvette showed up and became available in the fall of 53. Oh, okay. So some were one-off, some were limited production, but cars like the Victorus, the Glass Bar, the Widow, I mean, there were tons of them, like Grantham Stardust, other ones out there in movies. It's like, show me. Well, we can show you by just looking at the magazines. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you're the first person or first group of people going down the path, and you're getting information, and you're getting sometimes the only pictures of a car or a story, and you're talking to people. Well, we quickly realized we needed to save these interviews. We should be videotaping them or something, but I can't travel. We're... Rick's retired, and I'm a college professor. You know, do the math. We mm -hmm. don't have that kind of cash. We spend everything we have on these, but we can't. We don't have an unlimited fund at all. So we started doing audio interviews like you're doing, mm -hmm. and we started recording all those for posterity, time beyond us. And then we started working with people, paying money to have things scanned from their personal collections or if they trusted us to send it to us. And then you've got to, we had to come up with, well, that's fine, but then if you only store it on one computer and that computer goes boom mm, yeah. or gets stolen or whatever, you have to have backup solutions to that, and you can't have everything paper-based. So we started getting file cabinets that are fireproof. <laughs> but then I live in Florida near the coast, so what do you do with that? I mean, you, if I leave, they have to leave. Yeah. Um, we actually had to, had, we had to provide for digital backup. We had to provide for methodology of storing information, both physical and digital. We have interview schedules that we do, like you, to try to get these things done. And all of our group, unlike me, who's 52, the average age of my group is in their mid to late 70s. Mm -hmm. And like I said, Warren Edding is someone we found recently. He's 87. Uh, yesterday, I talked to Bill Jones out of uh, Texas, who worked with Carol Shelby to design a frame, on um, one of Carol Shelby's frame that he made available for these kinds of cars. Bill's 92, as I remember. So we don't have the luxury of time. So when we do this interview today, I'll be doing an interview next week and this weekend and so forth with these folks. Yeah, yeah. So the greatest challenge, I don't think, can be overcome for us. You know, we need time, effort, resources, all that stuff. Sure. So we've had to figure out how to do that on the budget and the time allowed. And I still work full-time, and Rick's still busy full-time Sure, <laughs> well. yeah. And so that's our challenge. It's not one that we can overcome. It is our challenge every day. Yeah, um, wow. And we hopefully are getting better at this. If, so that if um, something ever happened to us, we can pass along our stuff to Watkins Glen Archive or Peterson Automotive Museum Archive. None mm -hmm. of this is going to be sold. It'll all be given to a magazine. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, an archive somewhere where it can be shared. Because these stories, as I go back, it's Ameri you know, the greatest American car story ever told. They're wonderful stories and fantastic cars to find. Oh, fantastic. I'm so happy you're doing this. Let's shift gears here, Jeff, and go to the other end of the spectrum. And I'd love for you to share a story, or an aha moment, rather, with what you're doing, a time when you realize, you know what, this whole concept of forgotten fiberglass and chasing these cars down, there's some merit to this. And can you tell me a little bit about how you turned that aha moment into a success? Uh, certainly. In 2006, 
I found the second well, the shark coop. If any one of your listeners go look at the Covington Shark Coop. That was the famous one. Been looking for it for 25 years. Went out to find out information on vintage fiberglass cars because I needed to know more about mine, and we were going to start showing them, and found an amazing paucity and nothing, virtually nothing out there where you can find a gabillion websites on wonderful cars like Ferrari, Corvette, Camaro, Mustang. You can't find any that has substance. Um, and at the time, Lodari was the best one out there. There were good ones on Devons and others, but they weren't deep. You know, They were very shallow, but they provided great immediate information, but not the depth that you'd want in stories. Mm-hmm. So I found com and got to know the people who were running it a bit. John Gruel was the, the key player. And as I'm learning, I see this car called the Grantham Stardust. And uh, I never, I love the name. I, I, I almost didn't need to see the car. Who wouldn't want to own a Grantham Stardust, <laughs> which I currently, I used to have two, now I have one. And Rick, on the other hand, I hadn't talked to him in years. Um, I called Rick to say, Rick, do you know anything about a Grantham Stardust? Because it was up there for sale. Mm-hmm. And Rick said, I don't know, but I've got this mystery fiberglass car here that I just found in South Carolina. Ultimately, we found out what it was called, a Lancer, which we now own, too. And he goes, I don't know anything about this either, which led us to Harold Pace, which is a good friend and mentor who had been writing about these cars who helped us understand them more. And then, you know, I'm inquisitive, so I asked the group if they knew anything more about Grantham Stardust. They said, no, it's what's in the book, and it's like two articles, and that's it. So being naive, I went out and found the Grantham family. It took me two days. The wife of his widow lived in California, and his kids, some of them were in Hawaii and San Diego. So I came back to the group, Ladari group, and said, hey, I found the Grantham family. Look at all these photos. Look at all this history. Got all this information. Didn't do any recordings. Remember, this is early on. Um, the Grantham family is still friends of mine, too. And they, um, and the, my friends were on Ladari.com were really quiet. They said, um, we've been looking for the people who built Ladari, Les and Joan Dawes, for you know, since the early 80s. So this was about 80, 92 Oh, two, 25 years. He said, mm-hmm. uh, we've not been able to find them. I mean, you found these random people in 48 hours. Can, can you help? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right. Well, you know, I wasn't good at this. I just I know how to use some resources out there, probably like anyone, put the pencil to paper and figure out. And it took me about six weeks, but I found Joan Dawes. Les had passed away, but Joan was still around. She's also a good friend and joined us at car shows now. And I said, okay, we found them, and we found all sorts of history and information. And, you know, if you can't find your history on a car, the car has no meaning. Mm-hmm. It's just a blob or a shape. You need the, the history, the, the soul of a car. is It's history and experience about driving that car, building that car, the kinds of things that people and co-owners have had. If all of these cars were found and none of the origination stories, origination stories are around, then you really don't have the soul of the company or the organization. You don't have those kinds of things. And that's why Rick and I are trying to get all those first-person experiences from the family and individuals down. So they were really excited, and we started releasing stories on Ladari in the late 2006, and I met Bill Warner quickly from Amelia Island. He owns and runs Amelia and Concrete Elegance. And within six months of this whole thing starting with my shark, and we did buy the Grantham Stardust, and I found, and then I bought a Ladari Conquest, <laughs> and within <laughs> six months, uh, we were at Amelia Island, um, showing a class of cars. We had one, and a couple of our friends that we made brought their cars too. Mm-hmm. Victor's down there as well. And uh, Amelia Island is one of the top shows in the world, one of the top five or six. Oh, yeah. We were, Bill's been on the show here. You know, we're honored to be a friend of Bill's. We're honored to be part of the show. And actually, next year will be the third time, 2015, where we have an entire class of forgotten fiberglass cars. First one in 2007, second in 2010. 
and we have eight wonderful cars in 2015 at the Amelia Island Concord Elegance. So Very for those cool. of you listening, prior to March 15th of 2015, come on down. Yeah. So that moment, that whole idea that you can save history, save origination stories, imbue the soul back into things that are missing, that research I had done as a 17 and 18 and 19-year-old kid with a shark, it started again at a f- age 44 or 45 or whatever that was, mm-hmm. not just with Ladari and not just with Grantham Stardust, but by the time we got to Amelia, we'd already found the Victorus people. And by then, uh, Victorus was another big company. Um, we had a Victorus at that same show, and, and we found Merrill Paul, and no one had talked to him except one person from 19, probably 1960 to whenever it was, 2006. So we continually, time and time again, have, you know, what we were looking at that point to saying, all right, all these other companies exist. You know, there were 50 before 1953. Shouldn't someone be going out there and not telling the stories that were written in the 1950s, but getting the history from the families and the people who did it now? We found over 90% of the guys, a lot of them have passed away now, but they were still around. Fiberglass, rather than killing people, seems to preserve them. <laughs> they don't rust. No. Well, the people are doing great, although we have lost, you know, we caught them at the very end of their lives in many cases. Um, mm-hmm. But um, some, you know, passed away, like good friend Dick Jones um, and his car called the Meteor. He was actually in the hospital when he found out that his car won first place in the Amelia Island Concord Elegance in 2010. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, they passed away knowing that their cars made a significant uh, dent in history, automotive history, and they're being recognized, you know, at the end of their lives. And that's a very important thing to, to be done. But that's, that's the aha moment. The aha moment was much more of a moment to think we were honored to help with those companies should we do more. Yeah. And time and time again, we've, we've taken it not just to the company level, but the individuals who built the individual cars, too, and Very recorded cool. all their history. Very cool. Wonderful. How about proudest moments? I assume you've had many, many as you uncover these vehicles, but is there one in particular you can share with us? Best feeling I get is reuniting a, a person or a family with the car that they built. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them will tell you the same thing, and this is part. And they'll say this is part of their family. And when they find something that occupied such an amazing amount of time in the 1940s or 50s, and they haven't seen it for 40 or 50 years, there's a woman, Patrick Whitaker, in California. Her father, Dick Siebler, built, we weren't sure how many when we found her. Um, I had called her. Of course, no one had ever talked to them about the family. They had no idea. Her father made two cars. They hadn't seen them in 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we found not just one car, but two cars. And we, Rick and I own the first one, the Siebler Special. And so we said, hey, we found it in California. We're going to bring it to our friend's house. Can you meet us? Do you want to see the car? And she said, absolutely. She was so excited driving a couple hours or so to get to us in Altadena, California, an hour or two. She was so excited. She had tears in her eyes when she saw that car because she said, you know, we had a rough life in our family, particularly in the last years of my father's life. Her father had passed away. But, uh, she said, um, seeing this car that occupied such an important part of our lives in the 50s is like seeing part of the family. And she said she was so excited to, to see the car that she went out and had her nails done before she came over the next day. You know, she yeah. wanted to look her best. To see this. <laughs> we weren't on TV or anything. We did yeah. video record it. But uh, you know, the proudest moment isn't a moment. It's a, there, is, there is no better feeling than the byproduct of what we do giving a person a chance to know that something important in their early life is still around and people care. Let's have a little bit of fun here. I know you've had many, many cars. You've shared so many of them in that that first Cadillac, but could you tell me about your first really, really special car and what that vehicle was? Well, 
we've reviewed Mark several th- different kind of cars, and you can see the cars that to me are special now sure. are um, hand built cars that have a story. And and some of the coolest cars, you know, we're still looking for trying to put their stories with them. We don't know some. We've got several cars. We have no idea who built them. We continue to knock down and share information and pictures, and we're finding them. We found quite a few histories, but I have to go back to the story that I've already shared with you. The first car I had is one that I've owned for 35 years, and that's the Shark. The Shark, yeah. And it's a car that we debuted in 2013, uh, and it's not the Coupe, which is actually the more famous car. It's the Roadster. I used to drive it to high school. I would work on the beach as a bellman. I would drive it down to the beach. Oh, my gosh. It was a cool concept car-looking thing then, and uh, if your readers go out and look at it, I think I sent you a few photos. Oh, it's, it, it it's looks... Pretty, it, it, You've never seen anything like it. It's like a flying saucer. Yeah, it's a futuristic car. It's an anachronism. You know, it's future as seen from the 19, late 50s and early 60s. That's pretty special. How about current projects? Is there a project you're working on, maybe a barn find or something you're chasing right now that you could share with us? Next year, 2015, is going to be a very aggressive year for us in terms of taking all of these stories. And I don't know if this has ever been done before. I don't quite know what to do with this story. But it's exciting because of what we're doing. In February of 2015, we're going to be showing a lost car um, called an Allied. It uh, hasn't been seen in 50 years at the Boca Raton Concord Elegance. So I believe so. We're still working it out. In March, we have the class of cars at Amelia Island, and that's in near Jacksonville, Florida, which will again bring attention to all these cars. You know, and that's classes of the class of cars of many different owners. In May, we'll be at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, debuting a car lost for about 45 years called the SWM Gordini. They made seven different cars in Germany. Each one was hand-built, each one was unique, and this car was lost, hasn't seen since 1968 or so, and we're bringing that car up there and debuting. August, it looks like we're going potentially to Pebble Beach with a car, um, oh, nice. so I'll know more about that in the next two months. And then um, in late August, we have another car called the Maverick that we're readying. It looks like it'll be debuting at the Milwaukee Masterpiece Concord Elegance in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's five different cars in five different genres. Some are what are called boulevard cruisers or larger. Some are race cars, some are sports cars, some are barn finds. On the budget that Rick and I have, and we have two classes of cars, um, the classic cars in Milwaukee in, in August and the classic cars in Amelia, I hope lights the fire under why these stories are so special and mm-hmm. why people should be enjoying these cars and looking for them across America. We're actually leaving in just a few days to go pick up a car that has been hidden away for since 1957. And I found it about five years ago. I thought, you know, maybe we could go through the old magazines and look in the back in the for sale. I could probably find some people who kept pictures of their cars and pick in histories and meet their families. And Rick and I started doing this with great success. You know that phrase, Mark, the, the, what is the punishment of success? You know what the punishment of success is? No, what is that? Punishment of success is more work. Well, and, and it goes back to that challenge we talked about earlier. So in this case, I started going through the for sale ads, and if a person's name was Mark Green or Jeff Hacker, that's not too bad. I can probably find them. If it's John Smith, I can't find them. And I mentioned earlier, if people are like fish on a reef, they stay close to home, and guess what? We started finding these people or their families, and we started finding histories and pictures and cars and their car pictures and so forth, and we started doing interviews, and I've stopped doing this because the punishment of success is more work. Uh, In fact, we started finding cars, and what we're leaving next week to pick up is a car that's been in a barn. It was advertised in 1957, and it's still there. It's still there. Oh, my gosh. It's still there in the same address, and we've known the people. We went up and visited and took photos of it a few years ago, and and we hadn't talked about buying it ever, but I called him up recently, wished him happy holidays, and he said, do you, you want that car? Um, it's for sale. It hasn't been touched since 1957. Wow. 
So yeah, fantastic. We're gonna hopefully everything go next week. Sounds so like that's a, what we're leaving in like seventy two hours or something. Sounds like a great adventure. Can't wait to see that when you get it back. Now here's a funny question for you. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? If I were a car, it'd be anything that was the product of someone's passion and effort and mm-hmm. acumen and so forth. The passion that it takes and the dedication to, d- to design, produce, and finish and drive something would be that. The streamlined futuristic cars, which is what I would be from the 30s, mm-hmm. is the answer to your question. I would be my car. My favorite car is a 1937 Goujon Streamliner, all aluminum, cantilevered. You sit in front of the wheels, completely impractical to drive, and just a fantastic car. If you like Art Deco minimalism, teardrop shape, this one actually seats four people. And it's probably one of four kinds of cars like this that exist in the world. We found wow. it in the barn. Okay, Jeff, we're entering the last lap, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready to go? Sure. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. <laughs> Just do it. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? Perseverance. Just don't stop. It's related to the first one. Do you have a resource that you'd like to share with our listeners that you're really fond of? Maybe it's a a website that you go to or a blog that you receive? Yeah, a few that are really very helpful. Hemmings is, first of all, you know, Hemmings is a fantastic resource to meet people on their online blog run by Daniel Stroll is also learn about a whole different set of cars. Bring a trailer focuses on so many unusual cars that, you know, some of them hand-built, and you, you learn more about cars as you look at people's interactions. The commenting features where people comment on what they're reviewing at the very bottom when you want to post something mm-hmm. uh, the same thing and bring it trailer. The best custom car sites are two. There's one run by my friend Rick Hubbing, and he's in Holland, and the other is in Sweden, I believe, and his name is Sandre Kipt, K-V-I-P-T, and they, he runs Custom Rama. Both of those are the best websites on custom cars and the history of them. The Rotters Journal is a fantastic magazine for seeing finished product or finished research, something called the Jalopy Journal is the online version kind of of that same thing. It's a very interesting thing. If we were, we're writing a book like you mentioned, but when you're doing research, often the, the, the paradigm is shifted on how things communicating right under our feet in the last 15 years, the Internet and communication. And what I mean by that is that Forgotten Fiberglass reaches about one to 2,000 people a day. We're having an impact we're proud of in the automotive community far more than if we just wrote a book. But people are still saying, where's the book, where's the book? Sure. So what's happened underneath us is what websites like Cars Yeah and Forgotten Fiberglass and these other ones with online components are reaching people and sharing information so that people can collaborate, collaborative kinds of environments, discussions back and forth mm-hmm. where you meet folks and you discuss and learn. And that whole thing is better than reading any book or magazine in the world where you're just simply a recipient of that information. Sure. So resources mm-hmm. that are interactive is what is really important. Yeah. And the ones I just mentioned all have an interactive component except the Rodders Journal since that's a magazine. Sure. That's more than one, so I don't know what you want to do with all that. <laughs> that's okay. Jeff, would you share a book that you've read in the past that you think our listeners would really enjoy? Absolutely. And there are many different ones out there I could pick, but one I'm going to pick I couldn't find, and now you can, and that's why <laughs> I like it. In the 1940s, 1944, a young man named Dan Post started writing and chronicling how to build a custom car in America. And he started writing a series of newsletters and information that ended up in the first book in post-war 1947 called the Custom Car, California Custom Car Album, something like that. And those early newsletters from 1944, before World War II ended, 
to what culminated around 1955 in several different books about restyling cars and building cars is actually the only complete chronology and discourse of the changes in custom car building in America that exists. And when we started researching, people talked about Dan Post with, with reverence. No one knows how many things he built. No one. He was a big publisher in Arcadia, California. Okay. But he, in 44, not many people are documenting things, and the early newsletters were what no one really knew of. And if there's one phrase that captures what I, who I am best, it's ambiguity is my enemy. I don't like when I can't find information that should be out there. <laughs> so that I undertook a three-year research project, and it took three years to locate the family, locate the employees of Dan Post in the 40s and 50s, and bring all of that information together and work with Rotter's Journal, which is an excellent organization, to write a story about it for the first time in 50 years. It's a chronology of the building of the birth of custom cars in America. Most people talk about 50s custom cars. Well, it really started in the 40s and actually a little before then. And we found not just the Post family, all the employees got all of the missing books and I gave them as a gift on behalf of all of those people and myself to Rotter's Journal, who then published an entire set which is still available for 50 bucks of everything I just mentioned. Some fantastic books. And it's a collection of books called the Dan Post Collection. And it's not expensive and it's the history that's never been seen before in its complete form. Well, I'll remind our listeners that you can find all these resources at carsyad.com slash Jeff Hacker. All right, Jeff, we're up to the checkered flag. This last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, and money's no object, I'll buy you whatever you'd like today, what would that vehicle be and why? Well, it'd be handcrafted, like you, no, no guess, you know, no big surprise there. <laughs> yeah. The 1937 Goujon Streamliner. Um, okay. It's wonderful. It represents a time when the people in the, in the 30s were you know, looking forward. World War II had yet to start, and... Uh, Cars where we were looking, uh, you know, this were yesterday's tomorrow's, so to say. Yeah. And uh, it was all aluminum. Aluminum was a brand new kind of thing for cars back in the 30s. And that's what I was told when I found the family, that this was um, you know, rocket science. This was um, sure. futuristic to have things built out of aluminum. And that would be a car. So I, and I, when I've driven the car around the neighborhood, I scare all the kids anyway. So what perfect car, what more perfect <laughs> you could be run? There you go. I love that. Well, Jeff, you've taken us on an amazing ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories. I think we could talk for days. I want to thank you for sharing your journey with me and with the Cars Yow listeners. Would you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that streamliner? There is uh, one image I sent you, and it's uh, something I share occasionally, and it's taken from the X-Files and modified just a little bit. And I, you know, I tell people, if the cars are out there, which says everything needs to. The cars are out there, so you go find them. You go restore them. Go tell the story. Go collect the information. For God's sake, you won't be a competitor if you want to do it. I'm happy to help. (laughs) (laughs) The the cars cars are out there. The cars are out there. Fantastic. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about what you're doing and find you? Yeah, we can go to um, the collection of websites we have can all be found on our portal, which is called undiscovered-classics.com. That's our gateway to all the different websites. Okay. But we have Forgotten Fiberglass. That's our you know, 900-pound gorilla. Mm-hmm. And a website called sportcustom.com. Another one called bellytanks.com. Well, I'll make sure again that we list all these resources on carsyad.com slash Jeff Hacker. Jeff, thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and, and for sharing your experience with our listeners. It's been absolutely fascinating. Until we talk again... I'll see you down the road. Very well. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. 
Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!